Oh, okay, great. <laughs> looks like you're in. It looks like yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, Very. great. <laughs> awesome. Amazing, amazing, amazing to have you on. Well, I uh, sorry to have worried you. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? You know, hanging in there. Everyone has had challenges. You know, I know that. I know that everyone is, you know, struggling. So we're we're doing well. I'm sure. Yes. Oh, the pandemic, the killings, the protests. 2020 has been a couple of years. It's 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 packed a lot in in six months. <laughs> I'm telling you, <laughs> I can't even believe we are past half of the year already. I mean, the year 2020 is gone already. It's 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 yeah. It's just mm-hmm. hard, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Anyways, ladies All and gentlemen. Right. We have a very first special guest on the show, Professor Laura Keenan from Drake University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Welcome to Off My Chest. Uh, I am really excited about uh, being part of this conversation. Okay, great. So let's get started now. Today we are okay. going to talk about the race card. We'll be talking about systemic racism, police brutality, white privilege, and all things in between, though. So let's get started with the first question now, shall we? Yes, please. Okay, great. Um, first question. What's your take on the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, will you say uh, it's justifiable? And fair enough. You know, um, I think that my perspective, and of course these conversations have been going on now for a few weeks, um, I, the platform of what they're trying to accomplish um, obviously was uh, started many years ago uh, with regard to police brutality, and, it, and it's evolved into really a larger discussion about uh, systemic and institutionalized racism in the United States. Um, their, mm. current, their current platform is, uh, and and what we're what you're seeing, of course, in the news has been because of the George Floyd case that really has uh, put the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matters movement, at the forefront again in conversations. And um, I think that where they are now. Uh, with the platform and the changes that they're trying to get made with regard to police brutality, uh, I think it's very justified that they uh, people feel like that something needs to happen. And so that platform, I think, has been accepted and embraced by people across the country, white people, people of color, uh, because mm. I think we all recognize that at least with regard to the platform of police brutality, that there has to be changes. And I think people are becoming educated about some of the other broader uh, things that they're really trying to accomplish as well. Mm. But do you think um, people with other motives have sort of hijacked, especially with the protests? Because we see a lot of uh, the looting going on, a lot of other vices going on in the name of the protest. Do you think some other groups or persons have hijacked 
you know, the movement, especially during the protests? You know, um, I think that that's really died down. I, I read a really interesting article recently that was based uh, a professor who had studied um, studied looting and vandalism and um, with regard to protests. Um, there, mm -hmm. there are certain protests that uh, will end up having more of that kind of thing happen. Um, mm -hmm. and so she studied this and the Atlantic, I think it was the Atlantic magazine uh, that I read the article, uh, which was sort of culmination of her work, uh, studying uh, protests and specifically studying rioting and looting related to protests. And in her take on that is that usually when there is big upheaval, a big outburst, a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, um, that you'll end up with looting for a few days or for the beginning. And, and then as people become more organized, those kinds of things die down and mm -hmm. there's a more peaceful protest. So we're really not seeing a lot of widespread looting or rioting on that level anymore. Um, I, okay, so it, it, has, it has died down. The looting has died down. It has. And I, and I see what she was saying in the article is so true because over the last couple of weeks, we are seeing much more concerted, organized, um, you know, they're not letting up on the protests. That's every day, every single, even here in Des Moines, in a, a fairly small town comparatively, uh, this is still happening every day. Uh, but it's assembled. They're very clear on, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. And you're not seeing that kind of, that kind of looting. Uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't pop up here and there, but it's really not after those first few days that really died down. But, you know, in the first few days, um, there was a lot of rhetoric about what was happening there. I think that there were people that really were angry, took to the streets. Um, and then on the other hand, there were also people who were opportunistic that jump into that and they're just looting, want to steal. And then you do have these other groups that infiltrate, but um, there was a lot of politics that played in there where they were trying to just say that it was, you know, these groups infiltrating. I actually don't even think that the looting and the rioting was the major part of it, but it did kind of take over the conversation for a few days. Mm. And then it and then it died down. Um, uh, someone asked me if I thought it was justified. And you know, I don't want to ever say that breaking things and damage is, is justified, but mm -hmm. I'll tell you that there has been some legislative changes that have been made in the United States in uh, record time. <laughs> like they've got things together, mm -hmm. pushed it through, gotten built fast. And I don't, I, I gotta be honest with you. I think that if it was just a peaceful protest, that mm -hmm. I don't know that you would have gotten their attention and really gotten people. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it, I don't know that it would have been as urgent. Or, yeah, I get that. I get yeah. what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get deeper now with the racism talk. I'd like for you to explain or define, if you will, what systemic racism is. And do you think it truly exists in America? 
You know, um, it's such a hotly debated thing here in the United States right now. Um, I absolutely think that systemic racism exists in the United States. Um, I I got to I got to tell you, as a white woman, um, you know, I I myself have really had to take a concerted effort to really learn and understand what are all the dynamics of mm. systemic racism. You know, it's not something that in our school systems it's taught uh, in terms of uh, all the concepts, all the complexities. Um, it's not something that until you have some upheavals like this that uh, that there's enough focus on. And so then we hit this time and I had been really trying to understand over time more about systemic racism. And then now that this happened, there's a lot of knowledge just flooding, you know, the, the conversations. Mm -hmm. and, and I've now been able to learn a lot more about it. Um, during the pandemic, even before the protests happened, um, I had been involved in um, a couple of online webinars where people were uh, teaching about redlining in the United States. I don't know if you've heard of that term before. Um, redlining. Redlining. So um, what that is, uh, in around, I would say, the 19, between, I, I'm not going to get the, the dates right, but, but around the uh, late 40s, uh, 50s, maybe even early 60s, uh, there was a concerted effort to keep black people out of white neighborhoods. Mm. So what happened was that the, the mortgage lending companies were basically told that they should only give loans, you know, and, and home ownership in the United States is how a lot of people obtain wealth. They, they, they get um, equity in their home, you know, home is a huge thing in the United States. And so mortgage companies though, were told by their lending institutions backed by the government that they would only give loans to certain areas of town. Um, and those areas in town were, you know, what they considered safer loan areas. And, and typically they were white neighborhoods. And so not only, and so not only were they not giving out loans for mortgages in predominantly black neighborhoods, but they were also not allowing uh, black citizens to even live in these neighborhoods where they were giving loans. So um, that was called redlining. Um, so there were in cities all across the United States that were basically redlined and the mortgage companies were told that they would not be able to lend in those areas. So it created a, a system, uh, getting back to systemic racism, that really blocked a lot of um, uh, black Americans from being able to uh, obtain the dream, the dream of owning a And so that has impacted the community, you know, over decades because you now don't have a home that you can sell. You now don't have a home that you can leave to your children. Um, it's really, those are the kind of systems that were put in place that have ended up uh, continuing to visit 
on Black Americans. Uh, mm. So, okay, so that's, that's, that's obviously that's just one example um, of, yeah. among many. Um, and uh, so, I had no idea about redlining. I, I learned that during the pandemic. You know, so <laughs> there's really. But do you think, do you, do you think that still exists in terms of redlining? It might not be as pronounced as it is, but do you think that there's some sort of unpronounced redlining going on, if you will, of <laughs> in the in the USA right now? Well, do you think those? You know, I would have to um, I would have to look at it, but let me tell you a little bit about how things like insurance work. So insurance, um, of course, is based on. Um, uh, they take a look and say, how much of a chance would this particular person, how much of a risk is this person? You know, if we insure okay. their car, we insure their house, we insure them as a person, are they a risky person? Are they not a risky person? So I can tell you that when someone applies for insurance, um, they will run things like, they will want to know your address and they will rate your insurance higher if they believe that you are in a neighborhood that would be considered high crime. Um, mm. To this day, they will run your credit report. And if you don't have a good credit rating, credit rating is a huge thing in the United States. So if you don't have a good rating, you're also not going to be able to get insurance. So I am going to have to say that just based on what I know about our systems, if it's hard to get insurance because maybe you live in a predominantly black neighborhood that might be considered a poorer neighborhood, might be considered a higher crime neighborhood, you're gonna get a higher rating. Maybe you're not gonna get insured at all. And I'm gonna guess that probably there are even some things still built into loan systems that would also make it more difficult for you to obtain a loan. Now, I can't say that for sure, but it would follow that if things like insurance um, become higher in those areas that, uh, you know, rates, well, even to get a good insurance rate for your home would be higher than, and that might be prohibitive for someone uh, to get a home then. And so I would have to say that probably there is this chance that even today, there are still, because of the way that we rate risk, because of the things that are built into loans and insurance systems that it may still really disadvantage people yes i would agree mm. Mm. Okay. fair enough fair enough now let's talk about something that well i will believe that it, it, there's still a bit more clear bias towards uh, people of color and that's police brutality because from the cases we've had from the number of cases that have been registered over time we've seen that it's more skewed towards affecting uh the blacks and people with color the uh, police brutality is something we need to talk about yeah what do you think about police brutality and how it affects the uh, black community and yeah. people with color so let me let me split that in, in into two parts so Let's, let's first understand policing in the United States, okay? I have a, okay. I have a cousin who's a sheriff. I have, a, I have friends whose husbands are police officers. Um, okay. It's a difficult time right now because you know them as individuals, you know them as good, good people, you know, good family people. You don't, you don't think of them individually as being 
brutal or racist or anything like that. You know, they, they seem to be in it for the right reason. They, uh, you know, want to help people, uh, you know, want to make sure that people can live with, you know, peace in communities. And um, so when you start having conversations um, and these things happen uh, with police brutality, to say we're not going to put up with that anymore of course police officers are going to take that very personally because they're going to and and say hey that's not who i am i'm not i don't do those things um and yet statistically we know that there's a lot of police brutality that happens um you know uh when you look at police policing in general police brutality visits itself on on everyone. Okay. So it, there are people who have been killed or brutalized because, uh, an officer didn't understand that, you know, there's been deaf people who couldn't hear a command and rather than understanding and, and taking the moment to realize that they were deaf, they end up brutalizing a deaf person because they didn't under, you know, they couldn't hear. So, so you hear, you hear of these things happening, these sort of, uh, rush to judgments on the police officer's part, uh, panic because they think they're being threatened when someone was just mentally ill or autistic. You know, you look at these things, look at approaches to policing and say, why is this our, this, why is this the way people are being trained? Why is this the approach? Why are you doing so many people harm when there's cases that you could have gone about it a different way. So I absolutely think we have a problem with police brutality in this country. Um, now, if you want to apply that then to race and you want to apply it to people of color, um, there are two things at play. So now you have police brutality that we know is happening uh, and needs to be resolved. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, stereotypes and implicit bias and racism i think i think everyone can agree in the united states if we're being honest with ourselves that there that we or just even as human beings we have stereotypes you know we do that that's what people do um for right or for wrong we navigate our world and we make judgments Now, uh, when I was in Nigeria visiting, of course, when you are a blonde white woman in Nigeria, people kind of notice. You know? <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, for me, it was really obvious that people were like, okay, this is strange. Here's this woman that obviously I stood out. And mm. in some ways that was fun. Uh, on the other hand, I had uh been told at different times that there were roads that i shouldn't have gone on uh they were mm. my hosts were very careful because people would assume maybe that i have money okay yeah <laughs> they might want to rob me uh the truth be i'm not a wealthy woman i'm a professor you know so i, I <laughs> um, but so they wouldn't have gotten much but but the point mm. is you look at someone and there are things that you assume about them okay Mm. So when you have when you have human beings who in my case I'm a professor you know I've really had to look in inside and say what exists in me 
um, anything that exists in me, I, I hope I can, I, I can really root that out. And, uh, but I think that I'm not carrying a gun <laughs> and I'm not dealing with the public and having to police people and having to arrest people. So the need for an officer to really look within themselves and make sure that they don't have prejudice, stereotypes that might at the moment when they, when they're dealing with someone that might come to the forefront and make them make a fatal decision because they're carrying a gun based only on some stereotype they have. It's much more dangerous to be in a position and carry those kinds of stereotypes and racism in your heart or in your head. Um, so I, I think that there are some officers who may not even realize that in themselves. They may be uh, at the moment when they are dealing with someone, someone reaches for a wallet, they've made an assumption reaching for a gun. Would they do that more often in the case of someone uh, who's a person of color? Unfortunately, mm. unfortunately, statistically, the answer is yes, that they are going to assume uh, where if someone white were in the same circumstance, they might give them that 20 second benefit of doubt that would change mm. between that person getting shot or not, you know, and, yeah. and so I do think that that happens. And then the other thing from a systemic racism point of view is we set up things like, um, okay, here's this high crime area. We already know that more people of color live in poor neighborhoods that are tend towards more crime, um, mm. poverty. And so then what they do is they say, well, we're gonna send more police officers to be in those neighborhoods to police them. And what happens then is obviously you get arrested more often because there's a yeah. presence there. Yeah. So so not only are you, um, and you're gonna get stopped more often when you're in other neighborhoods because somewhere they think, oh, well, you don't fit here. Um, you know, mm. I'm gonna stop mm. you. Or, you know, I'm, I'm in this neighborhood policing and I'm gonna, you know, it, it the statistically, uh, people of color get pulled over more often, which means they are put in police interaction more often, which means their chances of being involved in a police brutality situation is going to happen more often. And so, so, you know, and then on top of that, they don't get the same benefit of the doubt of someone who's white. So that brutality may uh, spin out of control and act, and actually end up with that person being killed, you know? So, uh, so statistically, uh, there are more white people that get killed by, uh, in police brutality situations, but we also have only 13% of the population is black. So, uh, if you look at that per capita and, and by ratio, there are more people by percentage of of color that are in these situations um, um, at a much higher rate than the population indicates they should be. So, mm-hmm. well, an issue. Yeah, a really, really interesting point. And it's really deep. And for this thing to be taken away or for it to be eradicated and, you know, brought out, it, it will take some time. And legislation is the key point of 
eradicating, uh, you know, or taking down police brutality. And you said their points right now, their steps, the House have taken other uh, precedents. What? But let me just ask a question. What do you think the president is doing? How do you think the president is handling this whole situation? Well, so I'm going to just be com completely transparent with you. I'm not a fan of our president. Um, and uh, I, I think that um, for me, that comes down to his lack of leadership. You know, I, I actually, you know, we, we're a prim primarily a two party system. There are other I, there are other systems. There are some third parties. They never end up being able to have enough share of the votes to be elected. And and uh, and I'm really interested in some of the other parties because I I think we're to a point where having new thoughts and, and possibly new ideas would really be good in this country. Um, but what we have is primarily a two party system. And I've tended towards the conservative or moderate side. So, you know, the, the Republican side, mostly from a fiscal point of view, I'm kind of a, I'm a fiscal moderate. Um, I, I tend to believe in more conservative uh, taxing, more small government. You know, I, I don't think the government should be, uh, I think more, more of a hands-off approach, like, you know, uh, freedom. Uh, so that tends to be a platform of the Republican Party. But I did not vote for our current president, um, uh, and I won't vote for him again. And and, and even, though, even though he represents the party that I have more aligned myself with, and it comes down for me to his, uh, how he represents us to the world, because I think mm. standing in the world is very important. Um, True. What kind of leadership qualities, uh, and I've taught leadership classes. So when I look at him mm. as a leader, he doesn't check any boxes uh, mm. in anything that I've learned or anything that I would, I wouldn't hold him up as a model of leadership. So, so when you ask me how he's impacted this particular, the protests, I would say that he hasn't been a good leader in this area. Um, you know, that he, what you need from a leader is someone who um, is very empathic, uh, you know, very understanding, able to put himself in other people's shoes. Yeah. I think that you need someone who can um, uh, help calm the nation, uh, not stir it. I, I think that you need someone that's gonna being, bring people together to the table to talk through um, a lot mm. of things that are going on. And I think that he's been more of an agitator rather than mm. a healer during, mm. we, uh, during a time that we really need someone who would be a voice of reason, be a voice of, um, of, of being able to get people to the table. And, and I just don't see that in him. And, and, uh, and for those reasons, I, I can't support him. Uh, mm. I, I wish more Republicans would actually stand up and and, and say that they likewise um, mm. want to, you know. But I think I think money, I think uh, economy, uh, yeah, you know. And so then people are willing to kind of overlook. Uh, okay. And and uh, but I I think that it's hurting him now in the polls. Uh, mm. Most people polled are saying that they don't agree with how he's handled uh, the protests. They don't agree how he's handled the coronavirus. Um, and I think we have five short months left and um, uh, 
the American public in general are, are not uh, are not really excited. That's right. Like he's, like he's shown. Yeah. So. Definitely. We'll see. It's very close now. Just a few months to yeah. the election. So yeah. generally from your, your, your estimation and from what you've said, uh, in terms of economy and um, jobs and uh, money, mm-hmm. you, could, you can rate him a 60 of 100? Um, in, in terms of his leadership in those areas? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I talk, talk about the president still. Um, so, well, you know, obviously our um, unemployment rate prior to the pandemic was, you know, pretty low. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, by all accounts, our economy was doing okay. But uh, an interesting poll came out recently. Um, it, it, and it's one that um, typically comes out right before election years. At the end, of, mm. at the end of four years' time, there's a uh, a significant poll that comes out, and it asks. I think this last one asked a, a, a few thousand people in the United States. So they try to, you know, they try to ask a variety of people. And the question was, do you think that you're doing better today than you did four years ago? As far as how, how is your economy? How is your house? Mm. How is your wealth? Are you better off today? Um, that's so. It's a it's it's typical poll question that comes out at this time to get people to reflect back and say, okay, I voted for this person, or this person is who our president has been. Do I, if I'm really honest with myself, do I feel like I personally am doing better now? And uh, I gotta say, he didn't get very good marks in it. Uh, there were people that said that they're that. Uh, that they're doing worse now of course with a pandemic you have to you know factor that in but setting up there were um a pretty big group of people that said that they were did not feel that they were doing better even before the pandemic and there were plenty of people that thought well you know i'm not doing any worse but i'm not really doing any better so it hasn't really changed so so when when he gets a bad rating in that area and if people are really voting their pocketbook um, and and voting with their money in mind, then he's not really getting a great rating in that area right now either. Um, okay. I would say that our unemployment rate was low, but I I don't know that the meaningful jobs, the really good paying jobs, had really rebounded under presidency. Okay. You know, I I think I think there were jobs, but I I, I think that they weren't. Um, and, and, you know, when you get back to, again, this question about systemic racism, um, people of color are paid less. Um, we have a fortune 500 companies, uh, in this country, we have exactly three black CEOs for 500 top corporations in this country. Um, you don't see people, um, holding the kinds of positions that it would allow them to um, have play a significant role in um, even in politics, because you know sometimes money comes into play uh, with that. Absolutely. Significant leadership roles um, in corporations or in government, and represented, you know, uh, like I said, if if we have 500 Fortune 500 companies and 13% of the population is black. I mean, that doesn't even count other people of color. It, 
one would think that there would be more than three CEOs that are black, you know? So, so those are all of the issues. Um, and I don't think that the president has, uh, you know, done anything to improve those situations. Um, but I, I would also say that we had, um, eight years in our country with black president and I'm not sure he tackled those issues or made significant changes or inroads in those areas, mm. which is, which is, you know, I, I think, uh, surprising to some people, you know, that with a, a black, that maybe, maybe we would see more than three CEOs running corporations, mm. you know, uh, a, a, after having black president. So, so I, I, I think that, uh, our focus has just not been on um, making those changes. Uh, someone pointed out to me that there, it's there's a difference between um, not being racist um, yourself and being intentional about, I, I guess, not taking an action, not being racist, but not taking any action and the difference between not being racist, but taking an action to ensure that we end racism, you know? So there, yeah. what you're seeing now is that, you know, we maybe have been able to say, well, people aren't, you know, at least outwardly racist. Um, although I would say that there's probably plenty of people that still harbor that, but they just had learned that you wouldn't say that out loud, you know? Yes, but, um, I did. But, uh, there weren't enough people actively taking a role in changing yeah, systemic racism. That's, that's very, very important. Well, interesting times ahead for the president and the U.S. You know, in the coming months. It's going to be really, really interesting to see how things play. It is. <laughs> so, uh, we're winding up now. Let me take you to the last question. Yeah. In the Twitter space, especially in Nigeria, the conversation started and a lot of people were talking about how African immigrants in the U.S. are also, they also complain how African Americans show content towards them. So, it's more like African Americans are guilty of the same thing they accuse the whites of. <laughs> yeah, isn't that what? isn't that an interesting phenomenon? I have to tell you because again, I'm a white woman, you know, so I I don't maybe see some of those things. But because I've worked with the Young African Leadership Initiative and have had a lot of uh, and have had the wonderful, I, I got to tell you, I, my love, my time in in Nigeria, um, I've come to love um, my. Uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Africa, my friends there. I just, I absolutely uh, adore um, uh, a lot of the folks that I've had the wonderful opportunity to meet that are from various African nations. And um, so they come to the country um, through that uh, Young African Leadership Initiative. And um, we do put together some different forums. Um, I've been able to participate in those. And last year, there was an African-American woman who is on the city council, actually, here in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, in case anyone didn't know, I'm in <laughs> the, of the Midwest of the United States in a yes. city of Des Moines. And um, so our city council woman, who's also been a school teacher, came to a forum and she uh, asked the question, 
of the um, African uh, group that had come. We had a panel from the Yali um, group cohort um, that was visiting. She said, um, how, how have you been treated by, uh, in, what have your encounters been with African-Americans? Now, many of them had wonderful encounters uh, because we put this program together, you know, so we're introducing people and people are very friendly and welcoming, but just in passing on the streets or in the laundry room and the, you know, just those kind of encounters, they felt a lot of negativity. And, and I was really surprised to hear that. But the woman who asked the question, um, she knew what the answer would be. Um, she, mm. she told me that as a little girl, because she's probably in her mid-60s, that as a mm -hmm. little girl, her family and her parents and grandparents would tell her that she should not associate with African immigrants. Because, mm. um, because there is still this sort of feeling passed down through these generations that it was other African folks in parts of different villages and tribes who were, um, you know, battling one another, who would mm. actually sell other black people. Mm. And, and so, mm. she, and so a lot of the uh, African-Americans have no idea about their roots. They don't know what mm. they came from if they if their family came here through slavery. Mm. And they have also been told to, you know, through the generations to not really feel good about uh, people that come here from Africa because you don't know who might have, whose lineage might have sold you into slavery. And so, mm. and so there is that. Um, and I think the other thing too is that while they have spent years here trying to get to a point where they felt things were equitable, um, mm. African immigrants will come as immigrants and they have a completely different mindset. They haven't lived under, um, it, you know, in those feelings of disparity. They may even come from situations that are way worse, in fact. and. Mm -hmm. at it with a different set of eyes a different optimism and um i think that that uh kind of annoys uh african americans who have been here and feel like they're not offered some of the same opportunities that they might feel an immigrant coming here um is offered. Mm. and so mm. it's an interesting dynamic and it's, it's deeper. It's deeper than we all think. <laughs> it really is. And you know, it, 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 that's hard for someone who hasn't experienced this to know. So it was really mm -hmm. to me that this exists. And actually, I've been working with Africa Live Network TV, uh, which is out of uh, a gentleman out of Rwanda, uh, or okay. Zimbabwe. I'm sorry, Jack, if you're listening. Sorry about that. Um, out of Zimbabwe. <laughs> and um, he. Uh, we've actually discussed, um, he does filmmaking, so we've actually discussed whether or not there's opportunities through storytelling and film to start bridging some of those gaps between African Americans and African immigrants. Um, because uh, also with some of the, the things like um, the genetic testing that's become really popular, like 23andMe and some of these things, you can get genetic testing done. And now there's a lot of African-Americans that are t starting to take an interest in finding out where did they come from? 
you know, where, what mm. was our lineage? And really, mm. I think, wanting to even return and visit those places. And so I, I, I actually see that there may be some inroads with people wanting to know about their heritage. Um, mm. and, and that's been happening, I think, over the last couple of years. Okay. We have some really, I, I, I hope we can bridge some of those gaps. In, in the- yes, I hope things change and things get better, you know, both with the racism, systemic racism, African-Americans towards African immigrants, everything just, we hope, really hope it gets better. Thank I, you. So I do much. too. Uh, this, you know, this is such an interesting conversation. I, I, I can think of about forty-seven other things that I could tell you on these subjects. Um, something that you would like to have me on and talk on, break down some of these topics a little bit more. I'd be very glad. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll definitely fix another uh, episode where we talk a, a, a little bit more about other things. Okay. I'll be happy to have you on. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be on. And, um, you know, and I try to be really objective so that it's. Yes, you have. Yes, and, you have. And I want to, and I want to continue to, um, you know, be a, a different window into what's going on. So. Right. Yes. You're such a breath of uh, fresh air now. <laughs> so, Thank you, Daniel. Amazing, amazing person. Thank you so much for coming on. Yes. All right. Have have a good. Yeah, thank you. Man. You yeah. too. Bye bye. Have a great bye-bye. time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, we are off for today's episode.